listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. I'm jumping into a thought. Uh, I said it on Instagram, you know, there's, there's people that think, um, or you hear them talk about the subject of favor and it's like, people talk about it. Like it's just some random, <laughs> like a, a, an ethereal cloud that's kind of floating around the body of Christ. And like, you don't ever know, but every once in a while that thing may hit you. It's like, man, favor just hit me. I don't know. It's like, like it's a mystery or it's like, you know, people don't know where it comes from. And then you have, you know, cliched phrases, favor ain't fair, brother. Um, which, by the way, we could talk about from Scripture, which I don't necessarily believe that statement, that favor's not fair uh, in one sense. But uh, we'll talk about it. But today, I want to just show you an outline for you from the Scripture that favor's not random. You know, the favor of God is not random. Um, welcome from Nairobi, Kenya, Getty. We're so glad to have you on. It's always awesome to me. People watch from all over the world. We have people that watch from Europe. We have people that watch from uh, Canada. We have people that watch from Africa. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome. We have people jump on from Australia. Um, and, and the other thing is our materials. I'm starting to see like our books and videos and stuff like that being used all over the world. Um, I think our, some of our first copies of books ever this year hit, uh, like Ireland, um, place like that. We're having books translated right now into other languages, uh, to go around the world. And now I saw, um, miracle word kids videos being used in other parts of the world. Really, really exciting. Uh, that's an answer to my prayer, by the way, I asked God to, um, to do that for us. Let us make an impact around the world, uh, not just through our videos, but the books curriculum, things that we're coming up with. So God's answering prayers. Hey, Ninja. But favor's not random. And today I'm going to show you uh, how to access extreme favor from God. And, and, and it won't be a surprise when it hits you. It's not going to be a surprise uh, when it comes upon your life and manifests in your family. Because God gives us specific things in his written word that if we'll do them, if we obey them, uh, it brings his favor upon our lives. You know, I will break this down right at the beginning. The main part of favor or grace that is truly unmerited. You know, people say grace is unmerited favor. There's really only one uh, type of grace that was unmerited. And that is God sending Jesus to the earth. That was unmerited favor. You know, we could not have forced God to send Jesus to the earth. And it wasn't because of any of our actions. Uh, it wasn't in response to anything humans did. The Bible's very clear. The reason God sent Jesus to the earth is because he so loved the world. So God initiated sending Christ and it was because of his own heart, his own feelings, his own decisions, his own decree that he sent Jesus to the earth not because of man or anything man did. So yes, in that sense, that grace of Christ and the redemption of Christ is unmerited favor 
because we couldn't merit that. But after salvation, after we come into the kingdom of God, the Bible is clear in the New Testament, there are things we can do to provoke God's favor. We can provoke God's favor with our obedient actions. And that's what I'm dealing with today. We can provoke extreme favor with our obedient actions. You know, one of the things that I think is, is a dangerous doctrine to believe is that God just treats everybody the same. And the Bible's clear that he doesn't treat everybody the same. He doesn't at all. And um, I think one of the downfalls of something like the hyper grace teaching and movement is that it downplays the importance of your actions, my actions, that we can just be, pretty much do whatever we want and God will still treat us all the same. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, the Bible places a demand on personal responsibility. The Bible places a demand. In fact, that would be something great uh, to put in the comments at the very beginning of this broadcast today. The Bible places a demand on personal responsibility. Pop that in the comments. If you're taking written notes today, write it down. The Bible places a demand on personal responsibility. And the reason I say that is, uh, it's very clear, very clear that God does not treat everyone the same. And let me give you some biblical precedent for that Old and New Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, the Bible says in uh, 2 Chronicles, we quote this verse often, 16.9, 2 Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout the earth. And who's he looking for? A very specific type of person. What type of person does the Bible say he's looking for? People whose hearts are loyal to him or turned toward him. Those whose hearts are turned toward him, loyal to him. Uh, and then the Bible says, when he finds those types of people, he will show himself strong and mighty on their behalf. So isn't it interesting? God's not showing himself strong and mighty on everybody's behalf, but on those whose hearts are loyal to him. I wanted to just see what it says in the um, NET. Here it is, listen to this. Second uh, Chronicles 16, nine, this is the New English translation. Certainly the Lord watches the whole earth carefully and is ready to strengthen those who are devoted to him. Hmm. The one, uh, the, the, the translator's note here for the Hebrew says, the one who is complete toward him, the one who's complete toward him. So God's not treating everybody that way. He's treating the people whose hearts are devoted to him, that those are the ones he's treating that way. You say, well, that's Old Testament, brother. When Jesus came, everything changed because grace hit the earth. Okay, well, if that's the case, why does the Bible say in John 14, 21, Jesus said this, that it's only the people who have his commandments and obey them 
that he'll reveal himself to or manifest himself to. That's John 14, 21. If that's the case in the New Testament, why did Jesus say the same thing in different language? He said, those who have my commandments and obey them, those are the ones who love me. So the truest form or, or proof that your heart is turned toward him, blameless toward him, loyal toward him, is that you obey his commandments. So again, that's not everybody, right? Because not everybody is obeying his commandments. Not everybody's obeying his commands. And so that means if I choose to be obedient to the commands of God, what's going to happen? It's going to provoke God's hand toward my life. Jesus said, and then I will love him and my father will love him. John 14, 21. I will love him after he obeys my commandments. Then I will love him and my father will love him and I will manifest or reveal myself to him. Jesus said, powerful. That's a powerful passage of scripture. That's why I point it out all the time because nobody likes to preach that kind of stuff. But that's a powerful uh, thought process Jesus is bringing across there that obedience brings blessings. Obedience brings blessings. And so it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament as well, that when we obey God's word, it provokes God's favor upon our lives. Well, uh, let me point out one other passage of scripture to you in the New Testament that backs up this thought process. Um, and it's the letter from Jesus' brother, James. And it's uh, James chapter four. James chapter four. This is also uh, a clear proof that God is moved by obedient actions. He's moved by obedient actions. And I love this passage because it's a breakdown of how not just to provoke the hand of God, but to resist the devil. This is such a powerful passage. In fact, uh, there was a preacher, an old man of God who said, this is the most uh, powerful verse in the new Testament. But I want you to listen to it. Um, James chapter four, let me read verses six through eight. James four, verses six through eight. But he, and that's speaking of God in this context, but God gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So before I go to verses seven and eight, let's just break that down. You know what that means, don't you? It means God's not treating the proud and the humble the same way. God is literally actively opposing the proud. He's actively standing against the proud, but he's giving grace or favor to the humble. Well, why, why is that? Because we're commanded to be humble. So that's just obedience to God's word. We are commanded to be humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible says. We're commanded to be humble. But pride is something that we'll deal with in a moment that God opposes fully. And so he's not going to treat those two people the same. The proud are going to get God's opposition. The humble are going to get God's favor. So you know what that means, don't you? That action of obedience merited God's favor. It merited God's favor. It means that if you'll do this, God will do this. God only does it for those that merit it by their actions, right? Look at verse eight now, or excuse me, verse seven. Submit yourselves therefore. And again, I've taught this. I've taught it in 
Bible study made simple. I've taught it on the broadcast. If you're studying the Bible and you find the word therefore, you want to find out what it's there for. And we go backwards because submit yourselves to God is an uh, result of what he just previously said. What did he previously say? He said he gives more grace to the humble. Therefore, see, you could move the therefore to sub- before submit yourselves. And it would sound like this. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. So submitting yourself to God is the proof you're humble. Woo. Let me just say it another way. Obeying God's word is proof that you're humble. You can't just claim to be humble. (laughs) Obeying God's word is the proof that you're humble, right? He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Mm. How else? You ever think about this? How else could we submit ourselves to God if not by obeying his word? There's no other way. Because what does it mean to be submitted You have to obey, right? Submission is obedience. Submission is obedience. How else could we be obedient other than to God's word? We don't, we can't just magically know what God expects of us, right? We can't just magically know what he expects. He tells us what he expects in his written word. So submission is just obedience to the written word of God. And so he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil. You know, everybody loves, I I will say this, everybody loves to just jump to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You know, you ever heard that? People will quote it just by itself. Come on, the Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's not all it says. That's not all it says. It says submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a lot of people trying to resist the devil that don't submit themselves to God. So if I'm not submitted to God, why would the devil have to flee from me? Hmm. Think about that. If I'm not submitted to God, why would the devil have to flee from me? How can I properly resist the devil if I'm not submitted to God? And that's when you see Jesus during his temptation, Matthew chapter four, you know, and the devil comes at him with temptations. How does the how does Jesus, the son of God respond? How does he resist the devil? Well, we know Jesus is already submitted to God. We know that he's obedient to his father's will. There was never a time in his life that he wasn't, but what does he do in that time of uh, temptation in the wilderness? Every time the devil tempted him, he responded with what? The word of God. No, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how did Jesus resist the devil? He spoke God's word, the same word that he was submitted to. Glory to God. For he was the word made flesh. And so he spoke the word of God, the same word that he submitted to, for he never sinned. And what did the devil have to do? Flee from him. You know, I love the one passage because it says at the end of his temptations and the devil had to uh, leave him until a more opportune time. (laughs) That means that when you're speaking the word, when you're submitted to God, it's not a good time for the devil. It is not a good time. And the Bible says the devil had to leave him until a more opportune time. See that draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Did you ever notice that you've got to draw near to God first, and then he draws near to you? It's not like God's drawing near to you, draw near to him. No, he's saying, draw near to God first, and then he'll draw near to you. Draw near unto God, and he will draw near unto you. That can be echoed again, right, by of verses like Hebrews eleven six, right, um, where the Bible says, "Without faith, it's impossible to please God." And those that come to God must believe that He exists, and that He's a rewarder of who those that diligently seek Him. Again, isn't it interesting? God's not rewarding everyone; He's rewarding those who diligently seek him, those that draw near unto God, as James 4 says, drawing near unto God, I'm diligently seeking him. What's going to be the result? He'll draw near unto me and he will reward me for diligently seeking him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so today I'm going to give you, and this is, this is why it's so easy to see. If you just, all we have to do is look into the word of God, read the Bible, and I'm going to give you uh, the access, the ways that we access God's extreme favor. And it won't be a surprise. And we won't be like, I can't, I can't believe it worked. No, it works because God ordained it to work through his written word. And I want to show you from the word of God, seven things that God hates. But you know what that also means? It means that the opposite of these, God loves. If he hates the things we're getting ready to list, He loves the opposite. He loves the opposite. And so I'm in Proverbs chapter six for all of all seven of these. And that's where you need to be with me. If you've got your Bible, your notes, your phone may be open or an iPad. Proverbs six. And we want to cover these things. And I'm just going to give you some commentary on these. But these are seven things God hates. But he also loves the opposite of these things. So we're in Proverbs chapter six. And um, let's break them down. Let's start with verse 16. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Verse 17, let's start with the first one. Haughty eyes. So number one, put it in the comments. Haughty eyes. Prideful eyes. Put that in the comments. Haughty eyes. God hates. He hates haughty eyes. He hates it. And I'll give you some commentary even from these, uh, the expression in the Hebrew here, high or lofty eyes, refers to a proud look suggesting arrogant ambition. Arrogant ambition, right? And God hates that. What did we just read? God opposes the proud. God hates pride. He hates it. That's why he opposes it. God hates haughty, prideful eyes. What does that look like? People that are always going around looking down on others, right? That's how the Pharisees were. At least I'm not like that sinner. You know, they'd be praying in the streets, wanting everybody to see how great and godly and pious they were. Look at how I pray. Look at how I uh, fast. Look at how, how I give, you know, ringing their bells in the streets while they're giving to the poor. Why? For people's uh, admiration, Because they were proud. They wanted everyone to see them. And Jesus rebuked them. 
And he said, that's the only reward you're ever going to get for your fasting and your prayer and your giving is the admiration of people in public. Way to go. You've lost your eternal reward. You've lost your eternal reward because you're doing it pridefully. And then looking down at others, at least I'm not like that sinner. At least I'm not like him. God hates prideful eyes. God hates it and he opposes it. He opposes it with everything that he has. And that's why that the Bible says um, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Now that we've read James 4, because obviously people that operate and live in pride uh, are going to fall because God's opposing them. <laughs> why, why wouldn't they fall and be destroyed if God was opposing them? You know, God's not going to lose any battles. That's why Paul could write to the Roman church and say, listen, if God is for you, tell me who can be against you. But you realize, don't you, that the opposite of that is also true. If God's against you, who can be for you? Nobody is the answer. If God is against you, who can be for you? It's like you look at the two um, uh, examples of this. Uh, Psalm 127 in, uh, I believe it's verse Verses one and two, the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. But then it says, unless the Lord is guarding the city, the watchmen walk the walls in vain. Now think about that for a minute. Unless the Lord is guarding the city, the watchmen, I don't care how many soldiers you have up on the walls with bows and arrows and whatever, doesn't matter. Because if God's against your city, your city's going to fall down. And I look at the two examples. I look at the example of a city that God wanted to fall down, Jericho, and they had trust and faith in their walls, their fortification. They thought there's no way these people are getting in here. But God wanted that city to fall and their walls couldn't help them and their soldiers couldn't help them and nothing could. The walls came down supernaturally. But then I look at, uh, for example, Judah. When the evil king Sennacherib came to destroy Judah and he had 185,000 soldiers around their city, God wanted that city to stand, not fall. He wanted that city to stand and it didn't matter that they were way outnumbered, way outnumbered, 185,000 soldiers. And in one night, God sends one angel and kills them all, kills every last, every last soldier. You know why? God wanted that city to stand but he wanted Jericho to fall. So if God's for you, who can be against you? But if God's against you, nobody can be for you. Nobody. It doesn't matter how many people you get on your side. That's why I want to get pride out of my life fully and as quickly as possible because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Whereas humility will raise you up. God will grab hold of you and lift you up head and shoulders above the rest. Humble yourself before the Lord. Uh, and then what will happen? God, in due season, God will exalt you. God will exalt you. You don't need men to do it, culture to do it. You don't need to do it yourself. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. He'll lift you up. So God hates haughty, prideful eyes. What does he love? Humble, meek eyes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness, watch this now, meekness provokes 
God's favor on your life. Meekness provokes God's favor on your life. Do everything you can to walk in humility and meekness. I've talked to people about this in the Old Testament. Did you know that the Bible called Moses the meekest man in all the earth? Isn't that powerful? The meekest man in all of the earth. But then in uh, Exodus, the Bible says that he was the uh, very great in the sight of the Egyptians and in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the people. Very great. He was God's man on the earth. How amazing. The meekest man became the greatest man. And if you're putting something in the comments, put this in the comments. Meekness is the key to greatness. Put it in the comments. Meekness is the key to greatness. Without question. Humility and meekness are the key to greatness. So that's number one. God hates haughty eyes. What else does he hate? Number two, a lying tongue. God hates lying tongues. He hates liars. God cannot stand liars. You know, I was listening to this. Um, you've heard me reference him before. Pastor Enoch Adeboye in Nigeria. And he said something while teaching on lying that I had, I had never heard anybody say this. And what a powerful thought it was. He said, God doesn't just hate lying because he loves the truth. God hates lying and lies because he is the truth. What a powerful thought. Pastor Enoch Adeboye said, God doesn't just hate lying because he loves the truth. He hates lying because he is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Good morning, Brother Paul. Isn't that powerful? God hates lying and lies because he is the truth. (laughs) It's directly opposed to his nature and his character. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. To repent uh, does not mean that God has to uh, repent for sins. To repent means to turn back or or to like change his word or have to uh, add a... Uh, an addendum and say, well, actually, let me, let me change my opinion here. God doesn't have to do that with his word is what the Bible's saying. It's just like when the Bible says that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That means that God doesn't take them back once he gives them. So when it says God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent, means he doesn't have to take his word back and change his word. He doesn't lie and his word always is true and it always comes to pass. God doesn't just hate liars and lies because he loves the truth. He is the truth. Glory to God. He is the truth. And he cannot, he cannot abide liars. You know, you know what the Bible says lying does? It identifies you as a child of your father, the devil. For he is the father of lies. He is the father of lies. So think about that. Christ is the truth. You know, the devil, he's, 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 I used to laugh hearing this phrase growing up, like in the South, you know, people would say the devil is a lie 
And, you know, I thought it was just like a, a shorthand way of maybe saying the devil's a liar. But people would always say the devil is a lie. I mean, have you ever heard that? If you've heard that phrase, put a hand up in the comments. The devil is a lie. But, you know, just like Christ is the truth, the devil is a lie. He is lies. That's his nature. That's his character. He's the father of lies. He's the father of lies. God, the Bible refers to him as the father of lights. The father of lights. Amen. And so he is the truth, whereas the devil is lies. He is. That's his nature. He's a deceiver. He's deceptive. It's how he operates. He can't steal your power. He can't destroy you by himself. So he has to deceive you into believing something that is a lie. Has to. And God hates lies. That's why he's so, uh, you know, he ejected Satan from heaven as Lucifer. He cursed him on the earth when he deceived Eve, right? Because God hates that. He hates deception. He hates lying. Keep your lips from telling lies. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. You know, when I was growing up, there was a phrase that we'd always hear. You know, if you don't have anything... Uh, nice to say, don't, don't say anything at all. You know, people think that they have to uh, speak truths that are, are harsh, you know. And there are times that you do have to say things that are not easy to hear, but, you know, you don't, there's times it's just good to not say anything, if you know what I mean by that. There's times where it's good to just not say anything. You don't have to say everything you think. You know, well, the truth is, they did look horrible in that outfit. You don't have to tell them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just don't say anything at all. <laughs> I just say, I say what's true. I'm a truth teller. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. Sometimes it's better to say nothing at all. But don't be a liar. God hates liars. And the Bible says all liars will find their place in the lake of fire, in hell. Liars go to hell. That's what the Bible says. Liars go to hell. Speak the truth. That's how you identify with Christ. It's how you align yourself and submit yourself to Christ in God's word. You speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Keep your lips from speaking evil. That's number two. Number three, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. That's the third thing God hates. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. And I'm going to tell you something. That is why God hates abortion. And You know, it's not popular to say in this woke culture, but I'm going to tell you something. God's not just disappointed with abortion. God hates abortion. He hates it with a vengeance and a passion because those are hands that are shedding innocent blood, and God hates it. God hates it. God hates it. He's not just disappointed with it and wishes people would change. He hates it. He is so opposed to it. That's why I, 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 I couldn't. I can't support anybody that supports abortion. I can't support anybody. There's always a better way. And I'm not teaching on that subject of abortion today. So what about in cases of rape and incest, which, by the way, account for an extremely small amount of women um, 
that have abortions, rape and incest. But even in those cases, and I know all of the psychological arguments that people make, but what if God took what was evil, turned it around for good? What if that child that was born ended up being one of the greatest soul winners that ever lived? I mean, I know you, you just look at the people in history who their parents were considering aborting them and then decided not to. And they grew up to be people that made a, a great impact in the earth, right? What if, why would we conclude one evil act with another evil act? Doesn't, it doesn't make things right. See what I mean? And so God hates hands that shed innocent blood. And that doesn't just include abortion, includes murder. That's why the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. It's more aptly translated, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Because there are obviously times when uh, it's not necessarily sinful to kill. For example, in self-defense, protecting your family, right? But God hates murder. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He hates it. He hates it. So what, here's a question. So if we flip the coin on this, what does God love that provokes his favor? Those who preserve life. Those who preserve life. In fact, did you know the Bible says that? Bible says it. In fact, if you wanted the flip side to all of these, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, teaches on these things. I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 5, um, the Bible says, verse 7, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Hmm. God loves those who preserve life. Have mercy on those babies. Right? That's God's heart. Have mercy on those babies. Don't shed their blood with, you know, wicked hands shedding. That, that's, that's exactly what God does. God preserves life. And God loves those who are merciful that also preserve life. He cannot stand it. That's why I don't know how anybody expects to provoke God's favor being for things that are wicked like that. It's unfathomable to me that there are Christians who are extremely cool with abortion. It's unfathomable to me. Especially because with a Christian viewpoint and standpoint, you know that God is the one who initiates and creates life. You know that the Bible teaches that People's lives begin in the womb, according to the Bible. Jesus did, John the Baptist did, others, prophets in the Old Testament. I knew you, I formed you in your mother's womb. They had, they had identities, they had names in the womb. They're humans in the womb, right? And the Bible's very clear about that, very clear. Do you know what's interesting? Is that the, the anointing that, that rested on Jesus' life the anointing that rested on Jesus' life was already on his life while he was in his mother's belly. Did you know that? 
And the Bible says that when Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, walked into the room where Mary was pregnant with Jesus, that anointing made John the Baptist jump in her belly. Made John the Baptist leap in her stomach. Jesus was already anointed before he ever came out of the womb. And John the Baptist, another individual, not a clump of cells, could feel it in Elizabeth's belly. Could feel it in Elizabeth's belly. Amen. And so I can't fathom it. Christians who, who take that standpoint, that viewpoint. And ones that are, that are you know, for especially these new, new things that they're pushing out. It's like days after the birth, you know, all this stuff. Still eligible for abortion, like out of the womb, on a table, days after birth. It's like, give me a break. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not a baby, actually. You know, it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. Comedian Bill Burr had one of the best analogies I've ever heard. <laughs> that, I mean, it's funny to me when there's people that aren't even saved. They're like sinners that have a better viewpoint than Christians do. He said, I can't get with all these people that, uh, when they talk about abortion. He said, imagine if I came to your house on your birthday and your birthday cake was in the oven and I opened it up right before the timer went off to pull it out and ice it and threw it on the floor and destroyed it. And, they, and, and you said, uh, people were like, you know, you just destroyed my birthday cake. And Bill said, well, it, it wasn't a birthday cake yet. It wasn't a birth. Yeah, well, it was about to be. <laughs> he said it was about to be. And that's the whole thing. I don't understand how sinners can get that and Christians don't get it. Unbelievable. But that God hates it. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. You'll never find me voting for that wicked nonsense ever in my life. Say, so, well, you know, there were other things, you know. Uh, in, in their policies that I really appreciated more than the other candidate. I don't care. I don't care. I can't find it in my heart. I can't find it in my heart. And I'll tell you, I say, well, I'm the, you know, I, I don't ever, I've never had one. I would never have one. I don't, it's, that's the same mindset that Michael Scott used in the office when he was like, I don't know why they're getting mad at me. I'm not the one who came up with the news. I'm just delivering the bad news. He's like, you wouldn't arrest the guy that's just delivering the drugs. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're complicit. You're complicit. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Verse 18, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. God hates that. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans plans. Let me read it to you from the uh, NET. You ready? What an insight here. A heart that devises wicked plans. It's the same exact thing. God hates hearts that are constantly devising, coming up with wicked plans. Let me read you the scriptural note on this. Um, the latter terms an attribute of genitive, the heart, that's your your will, your soul here, plots evil schemes. Plots evil schemes. Does deceitful things. You know, this is one of the reasons that God destroyed the whole earth in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. 
verse five, look at this. The Bible says, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, this is Genesis chapter six and verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That provoked God to destroy the earth to the point where uh, verse six says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. You see that, why? Because every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. God hates the heart that devises wicked plans. Hates it. And you know what's an interesting thing is that, you know, that's not, it's not just um, unbelievers, right? Because one of the things I've taught on the broadcast and I teach in preaching is that even as a Christian, you know, it's not like you get saved and then it's impossible for you to sin. You can absolutely commit sins as a Christian, but there's forgiveness, there's repentance, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible for you to sin as a Christian. But it also doesn't mean that if you do sin as a Christian, you weren't really a Christian after all. No, that's why the apostles would write back to the churches and rebuke them for sins that were committed and command them to live a different way, right? Command them to live in a way that is pleasing unto God. Walk worthy of your calling. So it's possible, but here's the thing that I want you to see. That's, that's why... Uh, Though your spirit man is renewed, your soul has to be, your mind has to be renewed all the time. God renewed your spirit and according to Paul's writing to the Corinthians, your spirit man gets renewed day by day. Every day when you wake up, your spirit man's renewed. But your mind, that's something you have to renew. That's what we've been quoting. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, this is our year of transformation, by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12 too, right? By the renewing of your mind, by the renewing, you're required to renew your mind. That's your responsibility, it's my responsibility. And then you're required to put your flesh under. I'm required to put my flesh under on a daily basis. I'm required to take thoughts captive, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse five. I'm required to take thoughts captive. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean there won't be thoughts that come to you. Of course there will. But then you have a responsibility to take those thoughts captive and make them obey Christ. Renew your mind. Put your body under. And and see, when you do that, uh, it's not, not, though there may be even temptation that comes to you, you, you're not somebody that's sitting around plotting wicked, evil things plotting wicked, evil things. God hates the heart that devises wicked plans. Here's a question. Mike said, okay, oh, oh gotcha. He, he seems to be making a real effort to not respond as much to comments. Yeah, I, I, I am, because there's a lot to get through today. I'll answer some questions at the end um, if people have questions, but I'm just trying to uh, scroll up. Did I miss a question? Maybe, maybe I just mi- missed a question. I don't really see any questions I missed. Okay. If you do have questions, pop them in. I'll answer them as I go as much as possible. Um, but yes, 2 Corinthians 10, 
And verse 5, take every thought captive. Romans 12, 2, renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have to renew your mind. And so, um, God hates hearts that devise wicked plans. But what does he love? What What does he love? He loves hearts that find ways to do good. Hearts that find ways to carry out his word, to carry out his plan, to carry out his will. Loves that. He's looking for people that are striving to carry out his will, striving to carry out his plans. That's, those are people whose hearts are turned toward him. He's looking to put his, all of his force behind them and push them forward. To push them forward. See, I'm looking for people that I can show myself strong and mighty on their behalf. And let me tell you, favor comes upon you when you do what God has called you to do. And these are actually, Chevy, these are actually listed out in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Number one, God hates haughty eyes. Number two, God hates a lying tongue. Number three, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. And number four, God hates a heart that devises evil plans. What does he love? He loves hearts that think of ways to obey his word and to do his will and to uh, uh, expand the kingdom. He loves hearts that are coming up with ideas how to reach their generation, how to reach the lost, how to please God with their life and actions. He loves those hearts. His, my heart is continually on you, Lord. My mind is continually stayed on you. Those that meditate on his word, he loves that. He loves that. People are thinking, Lord, how can I please you? What can I do to carry out your will more effectively, more efficiently? God loves that. People that say, Lord, I'm going def- to find out what your plan and your will is, and I'm going to do everything I can to carry it out fully before Jesus comes. God loves that. And that provokes his favor. Provokes his favor. Um, here's another. Number five. God hates feet that make haste to run to evil. God hates feet that are swift to run to evil. Here, there's a textual criticism here uh, in, in the NET. Make haste to run, that is, to be eager to seize the opportunity to do evil. You see that. And just... Obviously, God doesn't hate the actual feet. You know, it's, it's being synonymous with the person. People who have, uh, think of it this way. It's not like he's like, well, you know what? God loves the rest of me. He just hates my feet when I run to do it. No, it's, it's a part of the whole. That's the method or the vehicle that's running you towards doing evil things. God hates people that uh, are always seizing every opportunity to do evil things. That's, that's the, the heart of this passage. He hates He hates feet that make haste or they seize every opportunity to do evil things. You know what I'm saying? It'd be like people that, uh, you know, it's just like the only reason I'm not stealing from you is because you're looking at me right now. But man, if you weren't looking, I'd steal everything I could get my hands on in your house. If you invite me over for dinner and you go into another room, I'm going to steal something out of your living room. I'm going to steal something out of your kitchen. I'm, I'm making the most of every opportunity to do evil. That's what the, the Bible's talking about here. People that seize every opportunity to do an evil thing. God hates that. In fact, let me take you 
Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 5 to give you the flip side of this. Because this will make more sense to you. Because it's important to remember time is short. Time is short. So let me, uh, let me read to you Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. This will open it up even more. He hates feet that make haste to do, run and do evil or those that seize every opportunity. I like that in the, um, the LXX, which is the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's what that notes from, that seize every opportunity to do evil. But, but look at this, uh, Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Did you hear that? Now look at, look at it in the, this is what struck my mind when I saw this. Listen to it in the uh, New Living Translation. This is, why that, this is why it struck me. Listen to the uh, NLT says, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. To do what? To not act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. That's Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 NLT. That's why it, it struck me, that, that phrase, make the most of every opportunity. Right? The, 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 the Old Testament here, seizing the opportunity to do evil. The New Testament here in the NLT, make the most of every opportunity to understand what the will of the Lord is and obey his word and his will. See the opposite sides of the coin? There are some people that are seizing every opportunity to do evil. Other people seizing every opportunity to understand what the will of the Lord is and do it. God loves that. God loves that and hates the other. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And so you can see very clearly there are things that provoke God's favor. Let's go further. Not just those who uh, make haste to run to do evil, but number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. God does not like, he hates a false witness who breathes out lies. Let me, let me get this. The New Living says, pours out lies. Pours out lies. Um, let me read you this, this note here. Not just uh, those who lie, but those who, um, what, what we would call in court, perjury. Right? A false witness. What's a false witness? Somebody that's giving fake evidence. Fake evidence. That's why the Bible says, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not bear false witness against your brother. Do not bear false witness against your brother. This is a direct violation of God's laws. God cannot stand it when people tell lies about others. You know, it's one thing to gossip about, and I don't, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's a different thing. It's a whole different thing to gossip about things that actually happened. It's a whole different thing to make up lies and breathe out lies against other people. And man, do people do that. Lying about you. That's why I warned 
I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before. That's why I was warning people about gossip because think about this. And I was talking about this in my book, Further Faster, um, when it's talking about honoring in your heart. What if somebody told you something about someone and you start repeating it around, but you are not even sure if it's true? That's why I said, can you imagine if you went into a court, could you stand before a judge or a jury and present evidence that the things you're spreading around verbally are actually true? Do you have the evidence? Do you have the evidence? That's why it's so dangerous to engage in gossip. Because here's the thing, you don't even know if it's true. And it's bad enough if it is true, it doesn't need to be spread around, but what if it's not true? Because if it's not true, guess what you're doing now? You're doing the very thing that God hates. He hates it. Uh, What is it? A false witness who breathes out lies. Here's the sad part. You didn't even know you were breathing out lies. You just put yourself in a place uh, that God hates without even knowing that you were doing the thing that God hates. He hates a false witness who breathes out lies, or as the NLT says, that pours out lies. And so that's why I say people need to run, run from gossip. They need to run from that because many times that is what's happening. Rumors get started. Stuff that didn't even happen is being spread around and being told to everybody and stuff. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear what they did? And it never even happened. And now you're a false witness pouring out lies and you've put yourself into a position that God hates. And then he stands against it, stands against it. Well, obviously we tell the truth, but, uh, that's why, did you know, um, the Bible says you shouldn't even raise a charge against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. Did you know that? I don't think people do know that. So I'm, I'm I, and I got to get the actual, um, I need to get the actual reference because I want you to write it down. First Timothy five, I want you to go there real quick because people don't even, people don't even know this stuff, but this is how serious God is about these things. God's very serious about these things. He does not take it lightly when people lie about others. He does not take it lightly. It's like, oh, well, he made a mistake. He didn't know. You shouldn't have said it in the first place. So listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. Listen, do not admit a charge or allow it. Like this is going to be admitted into, uh, submitted and admitted into evidence. To admit, to permit. Do not admit a charge against an elder. So again, I don't want you to read this verbiage and think, Well, they just don't admit it. They're wrong, but they won't admit it. It doesn't mean to admit something's wrong. It means don't permit it. You ever seen a sign that won't let you into a place that says no admittance? No admittance means you can't come in. Don't allow it in. So don't even receive a charge against an elder. Don't admit it. Don't allow it entrance unless what? Unless 
with the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you see that? Don't even allow it entrance unless you've got actual evidence from two or three witnesses. Well, why is that? Did you ever, did you ever think about why that's true? One of the reasons it's true is because the devil hates the elders of the church, does not want the church to function. So it would stand to reason that the enemy would send people to create false accusations against God's men and women to try to pull them out of influence and stop them from doing what God's called them to do. So that's why Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, don't even allow those things uh, to be um, heard. Don't allow them entrance unless there is true evidence. Now we're talking about evidence that can be presented like in court between two or three witnesses. Why? Because the devil hates the ministry gifts. He, hel- he hates the elders. He hates the church. He wants it to fail. He wants it to be destroyed. He would love to take down leaders. So Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says don't even receive uh, an accusation against elders without the evidence of two or three witnesses. Otherwise, tell them, go sit down and be quiet. I added that part. It's not in the Bible. But we're not allowing it. We don't listen to it. I don't have any desire to hear it. Do you have, and that's why I would, I would, I would ask somebody, you know, if somebody comes up to me, did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you prove he did it? If not, then shut up about it. What, what business are you, you running around and sharing that with people? This is the extreme foolishness that goes on in the body of Christ. And the reason I'm speaking so harshly about it, because God hates it. God hates it. Did you hear what? Did you hear about this pastor? Did you hear about this pastor's wife? Do you know that? Can you sit down in a courtroom and present actual evidence that that happened? If not, shut up. Just shut up and go on with your own life. You know, I, I heard um, Bishop T.D. Jake say something one time that it, it struck me, and I don't quote him often, but this, this struck me. He said, I'm too busy running my race to criticize somebody else's race. Man, what a thought. What a thought. I'm too busy running my race to criticize someone else's race. Too busy. I don't even, listen. If I wanted to be like these guys on YouTube that sit around and like every video they put out is just like debunking somebody's ministry all these heresy hunters. I don't, have, I don't even have time with all the stuff we're doing. I couldn't do it. I'm too busy running my race to criticize somebody's race. Can you imagine if you were running in a track event, track and, track and field, and you're like running the 300 meter, but like you, instead of running your race towards the end, you like are sidestepping to like check out the form of the person running next to you. They're gonna outrun you. They're going to outrun you. If you step aside and start you know, slowing down to start inspecting everybody else's form and inspecting everybody else's running style, you will be left in the dust. You have to run your race and finish your course like Paul did. I don't have time. I don't have time. And so God hates, he hates a false witness who pours out lies. That's number six. What does he love? He loves people who, number one, encourage one another. In fact, did you know the Bible says in the book of Psalms, how good 
and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Speaking, bearing false witness, telling lies about others, that breeds division. Division. It tears relationships apart. Somebody wrote in the comments, I was part of a church that was destroyed because of this. See, it brings division. It brings destruction. It's a plan of the devil and God hates it with his whole heart. Hates it. And finally, number seven, God hates a person who spreads discord among family members. You know, it's like, it's interesting to me that people are like, you know, God, God loves everybody the same. Oh, really? Because here's a passage in the Bible that says seven things God hates. One of them is a person or people who spread discord among family members. God hates that and he hates those people according to scripture. God loves everybody the same, brother. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. One who sows discord among his brothers or his family or his loved ones, his friends, sows discord. People always trying to bring division or their actions always bring division. God hates that. God hates that. And he's opposed to those kinds of people. He opposes them. You know why? He loves unity. Unity is what God wants in the kingdom. That's why divisions are stupid. They're stupid. They destroy. They separate us. They divide us. Unity brings strength. That's why anytime, even in the Old Testament, God wanted to destroy his enemies, God would bring disunity or division into the enemy's camp. Second Chronicles 20, Tower of Babel, all these different stories. What did God do? I'm going to come down and confuse their language. What is that? Division. Can't understand each other anymore, so they can't work together anymore, so they're divided. God goes down in 2 Chronicles 20, and three armies have united to fight against God's people. What does God do? God goes down, brings confusion into their camp. They start drawing their swords and fighting one another till they're all dead. Brought disunity and division into their camp. Because God hates that thing in the body because he knows it brings destruction and division. I refuse to sow discord. That's why you don't play people. Clicks in church are stupid. Playing people off one another. Manipulation and control. That's all demonic stuff. That's all demonic stuff. Clicks. <laughs> Did you know this? So funny. Paul the Apostle. I love reading his writings because he was hilarious. He was not only smart, he was sarcastic. He was, I mean, he, he didn't care. He just, he said it like it was. Paul's so funny. He, he writes to the, to the church and says, you know what? I'm actually very thankful that I didn't baptize many of you. <laughs> he, says that, he says that to the Corinthians. I'm actually very happy that I didn't baptize many of you. Now that I've heard what's going on in your church. Because you, you got people in there forming factions, divisions, and cliques. By saying, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. So you got the Paul click, you got the Apollos click, you got the Bethel click and the Elevation click. Well, I'm Elevation, I like Elevation, really, I like Bethel. You got all these clicks, right? I'm an IHOP click. And all these different little divisions in the body of Christ. And he said, I'm glad actually that I didn't baptize many of you. Now that I've seen the division that's going on in your church, 
for some of you say, I'm of Paul and others, I'm of Apollos. Right? And, and, he, and I want to, I want to, I want to cover that last thing. First Corinthians three, because God hates this. He hates it. Look at this. First Corinthians chapter three, uh, by the way, he just finishes saying to them, you're babies. <laughs> he starts that way in the, in the first verse. He said, I can't address you as spiritual people, but people of the flesh, infants in Christ, you're infants. That's what Paul, Paul says that to the, to the Corinthians. You're infants. I can't deal with it. You're infants. That's why I can't speak to you like mature Christians. You're infants. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? Now look at verse four. For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth or the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, and you're God's field, God's building. You see what Paul's trying to get across to them? You're creating divisions and separations that don't even exist. That, that's what he's trying to get across to them. What, what am I? I'm Paul. What am I? What is Apollos? Neither of us are anything except God's workers bringing you to the Most High God, who is the one who brings the increase or the growth. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. And it's not about you. We're all servants of God. It's about God. There's a unity in the faith because it's not about us. It's about God. That's why Paul said it's not about me and it's not about Apollos. And you're acting like infants by making di divisions in your church. And it's to your own detriment, to your own destruction. That's why God, God, that's why Paul's speaking to them so harshly because, uh, again, remember something, Paul didn't sit down and just choose what he was going to write. The Bible's clear about that. There's nothing in scripture that just came from a man's own understanding or a man's own decision. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God and it's profitable for correction and rep reproof right? To equip the men and women of God so they may be complete. And so Paul wasn't just sitting down and just choose. I think I'll write about this today. I think I'll be upset about this today. No, the Holy Spirit was inspiring him as he wrote these letters. And it was the Holy Spirit being harsh with the Corinthians saying your infants, divisions, it's destroying you. You're acting in only a human way. Right? Because this is how dangerous it is. It needs to be stopped immediately. God hates it. God hates it. You look at Proverbs. He hates those who spread discord among family members. And what are we in the body of Christ if not family members? The Bible says that we're of one body. Many members, but one body. In the family of God. In the body of Christ. We don't need division. We need unity. 
We don't need division. We need unity. Amen. And so notice this. So we look at that. What does God bless? Peacemakers. God blesses peacemakers. God blesses those who bring unity among the saints, who throw out discord, who throw out division, who throw out uh, problems and uh, drama and, and strife. That's why the Bible says if you've got somebody, something against someone, go to them personally and get it solved. Get it solved. Come back into fellowship. And, and God's, listen now, God's so serious about this that he says, if you have something against your brother or your sister, the first order of business is to go to them personally and try to work it out and try to bring yourselves back into fellowship. If they won't receive you or hear you, then go back with what? Two or three witnesses. Go back with two or three witnesses. And if they still won't receive you and come back into fellowship, bring it before the elders of the church. Get the church involved. And if they still won't receive you and come, come into fellowship and get that stuff out, then you know what it says? Then reject them. Treat them like tax collectors. Treat them like uh, outcasts. Re throw them out. That's how serious God is. We are not having division in the church. We're not having division in the church. So either get it straight or get out. That's basically, if you want to paraphrase that, that's basically Jesus' teaching. Either get it straight or get out. But we're not having division in the church. We're not having it. That's basically how you, it's dealt with. Because what happens is, is division uh, and drama spreads like a cancer throughout the church. And then it, it infects other people. Then they start getting discontent and they start talking about people and they start holding grudges. They start forming cliques and, and, and all this stuff. And then before you know it, you're, you are uh, fragmented in the church. You're fragmented. So Jesus basically says, get it straight or get out. Get it straight or get out. As for one who causes divisions among you. Woo, I'm going to keep on going for just a second because this needs to be said seen far too many churches destroyed because one of two things, it's either not dealt with in the people or the leadership is too weak to bring correction regarding what's going on. Well, I don't, brother, I don't, um, I don't actually like conflict. Well, good for you. So you'll have a church filled with anything instead of taking authority and setting things into place the way they should be. Let me read this to you. The book of Titus, this is Paul's letter to Titus, Titus, and he says this, verse 9, Titus 3 and verse 9, and I'll read verses 10 and 11. Titus 3, 9 through 11. Titus 3, 9 through 11. Listen, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Worthless. Now, verse 10 and 11 is very clear. As for a person, now hold on a second. Let me stop you. Paul's writing a letter to a pastor. If you don't know this, this is one of Paul's pastoral letters. Titus is a pastor. Um, and he's teaching him how to govern inside the church. So this is what pastors are required to do. You ready? As for a person who stirs up division in the church, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. You see that? It's not like it's, there's no chances for anybody. We're not saying there's no chances, there's no grace, there's no forgiveness. No, we're going to warn you, hey, get back on track. Enough divisions, enough problems, enough, enough issues. Then you do it again. We're going to warn you again. Listen, I've talked to you before. We're not talking about this again. No more divisions, no more strife, no more drama, no more issues. Enough. And then the third time, you're done. Don't come back. We don't, we don't need that in this body. We don't need that. You'd actually throw a person out of church for that? Absolutely, because it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that commanded it. Don't allow it. Why? The Holy Spirit knows how important it is to have unity in the body of Christ. We don't need division. So if you want to have your little division spirit and your little cliques and clubs and your little uh, manipulation, you can go somewhere else and do it. You can take it down the road because it's not going to flourish here in this house. That's how it needs to be. Because if not, you sow the seed of discord in the body of Christ and it spreads and the body of Christ becomes fragmented with divisions and problems and drama and grudges and, you know, all this stuff that makes, according to Paul, causes people to be infants in Christ. Yeah. Kieran said, we recently had this happen at our church and person got offended, bashed us on social media. Good. God bless them. God bless them. Have nothing. And that's true, Carrie. Too many churches suffer because the pastors refuse to do that. And you need strong leadership. That's why Paul, did you know Paul told Timothy, listen, you have to teach the whole congregation. I I wrote about this in one of my books. You have to teach the whole congregation. I believe it's further faster. That means the young people and the old people. So here's an instruction for you, Timothy. Don't let anybody despise your youth. Just because you're younger than some of the people in the congregation, don't let that intimidate you. God's not giving you a spirit of fear. You know, that's what Paul was dealing with. It's like, obviously, Paul was understood by the Holy Spirit that Timothy was dealing with some insecurities because of his age. Don't let anybody despise your youth. If God sets you there as the leader, then lead. Stand up in authority and lead. You might, look, I'm 40. When I pastor, coming up next month, there's going to be probably people in my church that are 60 and people that are 70, and there's going to be people that are younger than me, and people around my age, 50s, but I'm I'm going to be the leader of the church that God sent me in, I don't care how old I am, and I don't care how old you are. We're going to do what the Bible says, right? It has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do. You think it matters? It doesn't matter, and that's why Paul uh, is instructing Timothy and Titus to do these things, because division, not only is it dangerous, God hates it. Do you know how much power, do you know how much strength there is in unity? That's why God promotes it. There is power and there is strength in unity. And when the people of God come together in unity, there's nothing. You know, God said that about pagans. Tower of Babel. He said, look how united they are. He said, they're all united for the same work. Nothing they do will be impossible to them. Nothing they set their hand to do will be impossible to them. And they're pagans. How much more will the body of Christ be able to accomplish anything God calls us to do in unity? Powerful, powerful thought, powerful thought. And this is how you provoke God's favor. You look at the things God hates that we listed today and you do the opposite that God loves. And when you do the things God loves, it provokes God's favor upon your life. It provokes God's favor upon your life. Father, I pray for every person watching, every person listening. 
Give us a hunger and a desire to do the things you love, to obey your word. Give us a boldness. Lord, I pray that we'd begin to win souls like we never have. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would use us for your glory to see a mighty harvest come in in 2023. We thank you that this is our year of transformation. We thank you that you're doing supernatural things through us and in us. We ask you, Lord, let this be a year that revival hits this nation like it never has in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. You'll get all the praise and all the glory and the honor for what you're doing in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.